0: If you have your Bibles with you this evening, you can turn in them with me to Amos chapter 3. As with this morning, so too actually this evening... Uh, We'll be in Amos for a little bit, but we're actually finding our way once again over to the book of Romans, um, where we'll spend some time as we think through another conceptual idea before actually stepping into the content of Amos 3, surrounding the idea of Israel as a special people. Today we do walk into Amos 3, and God has now announced his intentions within Amos toward Israel for the sin which the society has committed against him by proxy of the evils which they committed against the poor and the righteous in the land. In other words, God, God used the reality of their sinfulness or their, their uh, oppression of the poor and of the righteous as an evident token of their perdition and of their wickedness and uh, their heart that is not right toward him. And of course, that was compelled, as the scriptures tell us, by both their wealth And their pride, and for this, God would judge them. Now, recall last time in our sermon, God spoke specifically about the uniqueness of the relationship that He had with Israel. He spoke of the fact that He had done unique things in Israel as a means by which to bless them. He said that He had raised up unto them sons of the prophets and young men to be Nazarites. Two things which were uniquely promised in the Mosaic Law as a part of God's promises or model for their society. God promised within the law he, he set a prescription in the law for the Nazarite to be a model of external sanctification, so that those who saw a man who lived the Nazarite vow or a woman, a man or a woman could take it and it was not something which was um, uh, perpetual, but it was a temporal thing and as as the nation saw those who had engaged in this vow of the Nazarite, it was to be an evident reminder and a token to them of the reality of personal sanctification and then of course the sons of the prophets who uh, raised up of their sons prophets who were intended to proclaim the word of the Lord thus saith the Lord and to remind them verbally uh, we have the same thing in the church today we have those who have been raised up to be a a verbal to to give the verbal declaration of truth to God's people and then we have those that have been raised up to set a Material or an external example to God's people of sanctification. In a manner of speaking, we might say that Legacy Baptist Church is one of those churches among the churches uh, in the United States where we have been raised up, and we have chosen a, a different path. And that path uh, is a path that that. Um, uh, uh, in, invests itself in a, a different standard of living whereby we, we uh, see sanctification as a higher ideal than perhaps others do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are wrong in their path, but it does mean that the Lord has uh, seen fit to allow us who live this way by conviction to have a unique place in the church as a means by which to show what sanctification can look like. And so we see these things, and of course we recognize that they had rejected those things, giving the Nazarites wine to drink and telling, the sons of the, or telling these prophets not to speak in God's name. So God began in chapter 2 to invoke the unique and the special relationship that He had with the nation of Israel as a part of the judgment that they were facing. And what I'd like to do this evening is I'd like to think more about that, lay the foundation for this idea of Israel as a special people before God, uh, 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 align our minds to this concept before continuing to move into the remainder of Amos 3. So chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 of Amos say this, Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family. Which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So, there are several things that we are exploring in this verse this evening. First, uh, the teaching about the implications of the idea that the nation of Israel, uh, uh, the, or the idea of the nation of Israel itself. And then, second, uh, broadening that principle to think for just a few minutes about the nature of God's relationship to his people of all ages and what that should mean for us today. So let's begin with the idea of Israel. And really, that's where our focus is going to be for the majority of the night. God tells them here that his word is against them. And he specifically mentions that it's not just against Israel, but against the whole family which God brought out of the land of Egypt. Now, we mentioned in our book sermon that by the time of Amos's writing... The nation had been well established as two, the nation of Israel had been split and had been well established as two separate nations. And we had talked about the fact that Amos was a herdman of Tekoa, which was in southern Judah, but then he was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel for. His ministry. And we saw that distinction made very clearly in chapter two, that there were these two nations and that God had seen them and was even regarding them as two separate nations in that just before God spoke in chapter two about uh, the uh, wickedness of Israel, he first uh, set his sights on Judah and Jerusalem. And he gave judgments against Judah and Jerusalem for their sin. And then he gave judgments against Samaria and Israel for their sin, of which judgments we are still contemplating. And the reason why this matters is because when God speaks of Israel, in the prophets particularly, there are several different possible contexts for that statement. In Genesis, we have learned already of a man. uh, Well, we will learn. We haven't learned yet in our Genesis series, but... uh, But in Genesis, if we read Genesis, we learn already of a man whose name is Jacob. And in Genesis 32, we find that that man Jacob's name is changed by God from Jacob to Israel, indicating that Jacob was a man who had prevailed in faith with God and so had been blessed by God. And the name change was intended to be indicative of the fact that he was now living under a unique blessing and a covenant of the Lord. This is what we would call the covenant name of Jacob. The name that was given to him that most naturally indicates the special relationship that he and his subsequent family would have with Jehovah God because of the promise that God made to Jacob. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. These became the children of Israel by virtue of the fact that they were Israel's children. This was the family of Israel. The family of Israel was taken into Egypt where they lived for a number of years. They were eventually enslaved and then they were brought out of Egypt as we contemplated this morning by God's mighty hand. And in Exodus 24 at Mount Sinai, this family of Israel entered into a direct covenant with God through the sprinkling of blood whereby God promised to be their God and they promised to be God's people. And at this point, the family of Israel became the nation of Israel. And this nation was a collection of 13 individual family groups that would become what we would consider for a time to be 13 individual tribal groups within a national collective One family, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, however, in 13 tribes, and particularly in the time of the judges, those 13 tribes would operate. Uh, relatively independently of one another. They knew they were family. They would come together for various things. They all worshiped the same God. They all went to the same tabernacle to worship that God. They shared um, uh, the prophets. They they did not necessarily always share the same judges. The judges were oftentimes very localized. And for those 450 years, those tribes would be ruled over directly by God as administered through his high priest, and would only thus remain loosely connected until the days of Saul. When the nation of Israel collected themselves together into a singular state, demanded a king, God chose that king, his name was Saul, and then came David, and then after David came David's son Solomon, and after Solomon came Solomon's son Rehoboam. And in the days of Rehoboam, Ten of the thirteen tribes of Israel rebelled against the king and followed a man named Jeroboam into the forming of a new nation. They assumed the name Israel. Naturally, they kept the name because they were the vast majority of the tribes. And they set up a new capital in the city of Samaria. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin stayed together. They retained Jerusalem as their capital. They retained the temple that Solomon had built there in their capital, and they renamed themselves the nation of Judah under the Davidic line of Rehoboam, claiming Judah particularly because that was, in fact, the tribe of the kingly line of David. Now, Levi, of course, as you can see from my graph there, was kind of stuck in the middle. Levi, we know, had no inheritance in the land. They lived on the suburbs or in the outskirts of various cities uh, throughout all of Israel. But what we do know from the scriptures, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> is that the majority of the Levites, uh, once Jeroboam took over in the north and he began to apostatize, then he set up a false worship system and he elevated the lowest and the most base men among them to the, to the uh, positions of priests of this false worship golden calf system. The majority of the Levites migrated down to Judah so that they might continue to serve the true and living God and be in the nation of the temple of that living God. Now, I know I've already given you much of that history in the book sermon, but I wanted to walk through it again to, to help us gain or, or perhaps solidify perspective. That when the Bible talks about Israel, it is incumbent upon us to discern who it is Is being spoken of. Is God talking about the man whose name was Israel? Is God talking about the whole family of Israel, that being the 13 tribes? Or is God talking about the specific collection of 10 tribes who split into their own nation? That would be the northern tribes of Israel. Now in Amos, as I've already said, we have a good reason to believe that the bulk of the prophecy is to that third designation there, to those 10 tribes who had collected together under Jeroboam initially and who had formed the northern nation of Israel. And throughout most of Amos, that's who is being spoken to. That's what we're thinking of when we think of the idea of Israel. And that is made quite clear to us. First, because God separates them specifically, specifically separates Israel and Judah in judgment in chapter 2. But second, because God is using the landmarks of the northern kingdom of Israel in his warnings. He warns about Samaria. He warns about Carmel. He warns about Bashan. He warns about Gilead. All of these were a part of the northern kingdom of Israel. However, all of that being said, that as we walk through Amos, we can generally be comfortable believing that God is referencing that northern tribe specifically, We do see a little bit of a different perspective here at the beginning of chapter 3. Notice what God said. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel. So he speaks to Israel, but then notice how he broadens it. Against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. We would thus believe that while the 10 tribes of northern Israel are the most regular focus of the prophecies of Amos. Yet when God speaks the things that he's going to speak as it relates to chapter 3, at least in, in part... Some of these warnings are not just to the northern tribes of Israel, but also to Judah. To all 13 tribes and the collective family. And this idea is supported by verse 13. I don't have verse 13 there, but if you did turn in your Bibles, verse 13 says this. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord and the God of hosts. That in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. Notice there in chapter 3, verse 13, God says, Hear ye and testify in the house of whom? In the house of Jacob using not the covenant name of Israel, but the, the biological or the, uh, the, the bo- birth name of Israel, that being Jacob, showing that we're talking about the blood lineage of the people, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and thus comprising all those who are under that banner of Jacob, namely all 13, well, 12 sons, but then 13, because God took Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and gave them each a, a, a equal portion of the birthright. And so we have 13 tribes because Joseph's sons uh, were, were given equal measure and portion with Israel's other sons, thus making 13 tribes and 13 sons. And the warning that we find then to all, the whole family of Israel, the whole family that was brought up out of Egypt, not just to northern Israel, is this that they will be punished for their iniquities. That's it. You will be punished for your iniquities. That's what it says in verse 2. I will punish you for all your iniquities. But notice also why. God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. We're going to talk about the idea that God is, is Punishing them for their iniquities specifically because of his unique relationship with them. And that's an interesting idea. We're going to take a sermon next week to explore that. But the reason why they have that unique relationship is because of this covenant. God is referencing that covenant idea that I already spoke of regarding the family of Israel in Exodus chapter 24. Where beginning in chapter 20, God lays out his law and his expectations for the nation and they enter into that covenant with him. And we aren't going to read all those chapters this evening. We're not going to read chapter 20 and 21. And uh, really, we'd want to start in Exodus 18 and read all the way to Exodus 24. And we're not going to do that this evening. But I do want to give you a good summary of these ideas. And we find that good summary in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11, the Bible says this. God, Moses speaking, God God thus speaking through him to the the children of Israel and says this. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you And because he would keep the oath which he hath sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him, he will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. So this is actually the fundamental basis for what Amos says here in Amos chapter 3, that the family of Israel alone was the people that God had known. Above all the families of the earth, the family of Israel is a unique a special and particular family among the families of the earth to God. They were then, and what we'll see as we continue through the message tonight, is that they are, in fact, still unique and special to God today. And for generations now, we have heard about the fact that Israel is God's chosen people. And this has actually become a controversy even in the Christian church with a a wing of the church saying that God is finished with Israel, that the church has replaced Israel uh, and, and that thus the church is now God's chosen people and Israel has no place, the nation of Israel has no further place in God's plans And others insisting that the nation of Israel is still, in fact, a chosen people unto God and still has a place in God's plans. And I'd like to talk about that with a chunk of the time that we have this evening as well. Within the scope of Old Testament revelation, there's little doubt in the Old Testament that Israel are God's chosen people. We've seen it already through Deuteronomy. I alluded to the covenant that was made in Exodus chapter 24. And we read even here toward the end of the Old Testament in Amos of God's particular care and focus upon the family of Israel. The controversy doesn't come until we start to study the New Testament. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 verse 11 that Jesus came into his own, that the word that was made flesh came into his own, And his own received him not. This speaking of the people of Israel, who, when Jesus came to his own, to the nation that was his own, that nation rejected him. They falsely accused him, and they sent him to die upon the cross. And at that point, everything changed. And we read about that change in Romans chapters 2 and 3. And you can turn there if you have your Bibles because we're going to spend a good deal of time in Romans. We'll be spending most of it in Romans 9 through 11. But in Romans 2 and 3, we begin to read about this change. Follow along with me as I follow along with Paul's argument here. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, the Bible says this. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law. And makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and the truth of the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest, a man should not steal, dost thou steal. Thou that sayest, a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery. Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law." But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that... um, Well, we have a bit of a jump there, but neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Okay, so in Romans chapter 2, we see Paul speaking to a presumably hypothetical Jewish person. He is not writing to a specific Jewish person. He is writing hypothetically. He is saying, Thou callest thyself a Jew. He's not writing to a man who calls himself a Jew here. He is writing to the Church of Rome. But what he is doing is he is saying to a hypothetical man who is a Jewish man who is arguing against the gospel of Jesus Christ or is arguing for the need for the law, who is arguing for self righteousness under the Law, And that is what the Jews argued for. And so Paul is speaking to that argument. And he describes this man, this Jewish man, as a man who rests in the law, who makes his boast in God, who knows the will of God because he knows the word of God, who is living according to the excellence of the law in that sense. He says in verse uh, 18, And you know his will, you approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. He, this man is confident that he is a guide to the blind, that he has insights into the true nature of life because he has insights into the true nature of God. So he believes he is a light to those in darkness because of the knowledge that he has in the law. But then he asks the million-dollar question to this hypothetical Jew regarding any man who trusts in the law for their righteousness, which is this. Do you, in knowing the law in placing yourself under the law, break the law. Do you, who, I, who acknowledges and preaches, thou shalt not steal, do you steal? Who preaches, you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Who preaches, do not uh, uh, abhor idols, do you commit sacrilege? And the answer, of course, is yes. Of course, is yes. Because everyone breaks the law of God. So then Paul asks this, what good then is it to be under the law? What good then is your circumcision? And he quotes some Old Testament scriptures saying that that what what the prophet said is that the the, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through the nation of Israel as they have taken the law upon themselves and yet abhorred the law and yet uh, disobeyed the law. So Paul says, if you, hypothetical Jew, being of the circumcision, this is one of the primary ways that the Jew would identify and distinguish himself from those who were not Jews, is that the Jews, of course, by covenant were circumcised, whereas uh, at that time and and throughout most of history, the majority of men would not be circumcised. So he says, you who are of the circumcision, meaning uh, 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 an ethnic Jew, if, the circ- if, if you, as those who are of the circumcision, still break the law, and if the uncircumcision might hypothetically keep the law, for indeed it is not as if being a part of Israel gives a man any better of an ability to obey the Old Testament commandments, then what really makes a man a Jew In other words, what really makes a man a person who is right with God and special before God is not intrinsically, in this case, that he conforms to an outward standard, but rather to an inward standard. Now, with what I've read so far, if Romans ended at chapter 2, we'd say, huh. Well, it does appear then that the Jew is no longer anyone of the nation of Israel by bloodline, but rather the Jew is just the man who, in this case, if we, if we take the last few verses here, one who is a Jew inwardly, circumcision of the heart and in the spirit. Well, we know where that happens. Jeremiah 31 spoke about that. We know that that's fulfilled in all of those who accept Christ as their Savior. When we accept Christ as our savior, we are circumcised of heart, we are changed in heart, we are given the spirit of God, we are made a new creature in Christ. Okay? So if we ended if we ended Romans in Romans 2, we would have to say, "Well, yes, the church has replaced Israel." Well, yes, Israel has no more place in God's plan. Even as we read in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 22. Paul writes, "Wherefore remember, that being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that would be being called an a, a outsider or a Gentile by the Jews, that at that time... Ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye, this would be these these Ephesians, these who were called the uncircumcision, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, both one there being circumcision and uncircumcision, both being made one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, between circumcision and uncircumcision, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, because Jesus fulfilled the law, for to make in himself of twain, that word meaning two, one new man." so making peace, peace between Jew and Gentile by means of Christ who has made them all through the gospel of Jesus Christ into one body, one new man, and that man being the church, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them which were nigh, you who were far off being the uncircumcision, them which were nigh being the circumcision." For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God, through the Spirit, so Paul describes the reader in Ephesus as a Gentile in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by the Jews who were the circumcision, without Christ, aliens from the nation, the commonwealth of Israel. Then the national or the commonwealth of Israel being uh, those with whom God made that covenant of the law, strangers of the covenants of promise. That would be the covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel. But then Paul says, "In Christ, those who are the uncircumcision, who were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. That both were made one. The middle wall of partition was broken down. The separation between Jew and Gentiles was abolished in the flesh by uh, 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 in his flesh, uh, uh, through abolishing the law of the commandments, fulfilling the law in himself, and so making the law of no further effect in the same way that it was before." and thus making of Jew and Gentile one new man. So that the Gentile is no longer a stranger, no longer a foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints and of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And we call that the church. So then once again, we might say, well, yes then. God made this new man that is called the church. That new man uh, is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Therefore, the church uh, has replaced Israel. Well, then why would we think that God has a plan left for national Israel? Why would a portion of the church still believe that the nation of Israel itself, that that little chunk of land that's over there in the Middle East, that uh, various people who are of the bloodline and lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been drawing to now for the past 70 years or so, why would a contingency of the Christian church believe that there is still something for them? After all, what does Peter write? We've considered Paul. We considered Paul in Romans 2. We considered Paul in Ephesians. What about Peter? Peter writes of the church in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter says that the church is a chosen generation. And what's fascinating about this language, chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, peculiar people, is that is what Deuteronomy calls the, the family of Israel. We were in time past not a people, but now we are the people of God. Surely then, God has replaced Israel with the church. Surely then, God has transferred the promises to his cho- to, uh, of his chosen family, which is Israel and given them to this chosen family of Christ. Well, that would be what we'd say if we didn't have Romans 9 through 11 in our Bibles. But we do have Romans 9 through 11 in our Bibles. And because we have Romans 9 through 11 in our Bibles, we cannot say that. Because we have Romans 9 through 11 in our Bibles, we have to believe that God still has a plan for the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now, I cannot... Uh, I cannot work through all of Romans 9 through 11 with you this evening, but I want to hit the highlights so that you can see this. Romans uh, chapter 9, beginning in verses 1 through 8, the Bible says this, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, Paul writing, it's in the same book, right? It's in the same book where, 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 where we read Romans 2, just a little farther in the letter, okay? Remember that, same book. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Paul writing for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. And notice who he's talking about when he's talking about his brethren here. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, who are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came. All right, let's do some deductive reasoning. Let's put on our our Sherlock Holmes hat this evening and let's, think through who this group of people might be. Paul's kinsman according to the flesh. Okay, we know that he was a man who was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He says that unto whom uh, this group of people that he's talking about pertain, the adoption and the glory and the covenants. Okay, that was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The giving of the law. That was Moses in the days of the children of Israel. The service of God. That would be the Levites, right? The promises who are... Whose are the fathers? Which nation of Israel is the, well, which, which nation, which family group uh, uh, is the family group of the patriarchs? That would be the family of Israel. And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came? Christ came out of which, concerning the flesh, Christ came out of which family? He came out of the tribe of Judah, of the family of Israel, who is overall God bless forever. Amen. We are talking, Paul says here, that he has a heaviness in his heart. For whom? He has a heaviness in his heart for his blood brethren, for the nation of Israel, for his kinsmen uh, in the flesh. Verse 6. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So take note of that context here, speaking about the, 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 the physical nation of Israel. And notice Paul did not say that these promises that he had listed once pertained to these people, but he said specifically that these promises pertaineth to the nation of Israel. Present tense, they still pertain. Paul then explains that though all were of Israel, meaning they were all blood relations, they didn't, that didn't make them all in Israel. In other words, in the covenant. We might say it this way if we were describing it today. They were all of Jacob, but they weren't all of Israel. They were, they're were they all the bloodline of the promised nation, but they did not all enter into those promises by faith, as Israel did when his name was changed. That though there were many in the nation who came from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that never meant that every single one of them would intrinsically believe the promises and so receive the promises because not every one of them would have that faith. And if they didn't believe, then they simply could not receive. It's always been that way. Faith has always been the thing by which a man related himself rightly to God. And Paul goes on to give an example of this in Jacob and in Esau. They were both children of Isaac. But Jacob was blessed by God for his faith And Esau was rejected as the seed because he was a profane man and a man of faithlessness. So though they were both children of Isaac and thus both of them were under that promise, yet Esau still missed out on that promise because he had rejected that promise. And Jacob entered into that promise because he had believed and thus received the promise. And this is an illustration of the fact that just because Esau was of the bloodline of Isaac does not mean he got a get-out-of-jail-free card as it related to faith. Esau still had to exercise faith. And if he did not exercise faith, just because he was of the seed, it did not necessarily mean that he got in for free. We continue in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul's answer, God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Paul argues that God has every right to set the standard by which he shows mercy and by which he shows compassion. Esau may have been a man that his father Isaac really liked. Esau was favored of his father. Esau was a mighty hunter. Esau was a man of the field. Esau, perhaps because of these things and his unique relationship to his father, said, God will bless me. I will receive this blessing by default because I, uh, by my standard, I am a man, and maybe even by my father's standard, I'm the kind of man that my father likes. But see, it wasn't Esau's standard, nor was it Isaac's standard that set the standard. It was God's standard. And God's standard was and always has been faith. So it was not of, of the man that willed, nor of the man that ran, but of the God that showed mercy. The God that shows the context for mercy, and his context was faith. God's standard is never arbitrary. It is consistent. It is faithful. It is not petty. And his standard has always been faith. I skip again to verse 22 as we continue to simply hit the highlights here. Paul asks a question What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory? Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith in OC. I will call them my people, and that would be Hosea, by the way, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Esaias, that would be Isaiah, also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been a Sodom and, and been made like unto Gomorrah. So Paul asks a question in this chunk. If God has every right to set the standard by which he shows mercy, then is it beyond God to endure Generation after generation who were men that came out of Israel, that were of the seed of Israel, and yet they were profane men, they did not believe, they did not receive, in order that in the fullness of time he could bring about something in them at a later time. For generations, God rebuked the nation of Israel for their rebellion For generations, kings and priests, not to mention the people themselves, rejected the message of God, rejected the character of God, in order that, in the end, he might bring about his glorious plan, and that not just for Israel, but also, as God prophesied, for those who are not of the circumcision, for those who are in the Gentile world through Christ. So God had a work to do and he suffered these vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. The idea there not being that he chose them for destruction, but that they through their unbelief fitted themselves for destruction. And he endured them through all of those years of their, of, of their gainsaying, of their of their stubbornness, of their stiff-necked and rebellious ways in order that he might bring about The fullness of Christ, in order that the Jew and the Gentile together might become a part of that church, and that in the fullness of time, God could work the fullness of his plan. And so Paul quotes several Old Testament passages here. He quotes Hosea chapter two verse twenty-three, where God prophesies that those who were not His people would become His people. He then quotes Hosea chapter one verse ten, where God prophesies that those who were not His people would be called the children of the living God. Then he then then he quotes Isaiah chapter ten verses twenty-two and twenty-three, where Isaiah speaks to the fact that only a remnant would actually be saved out of the number of the children of Israel, but that the Lord would finish the work that He would begin and that he would cut short that work in his righteousness. And then finally, he quotes Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, where Isaiah proclaims that unless the Lord had left a seed, had left a remnant of the righteous, the nation would have been utterly apostate like Sodom and Gomorrah. And I draw your attention back to that third reference that I just said, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23 where Isaiah says that a remnant would be saved, but that the Lord would finish the work that he began, but cut short. This prophecy is essential as we continue. And we are going to continue. And I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 11 here. I'm going to skip all of chapter 10, not because chapter 10 is not important, but because Paul's arguments in chapter 10 speak more to what God has transitioned to doing through the church something that we've already established. We've already established that in this time and in this place and in this age, uh, God is working through the church, through the body of Christ that is made up of Jew and Gentile alike, and that that doesn't matter within the body of Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're bond or free, whether you're male or female, we are all one in Christ. So there's more of that in chapter 10 where we say, oh, okay, God is doing something through the church. But once again, we need chapter 11 as well. And in chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, I say then, Hath God cast away his people? Now, take this in context. Who is his people within the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11? Paul had a heaviness in his heart for his people, his kinsmen according to the flesh, his brethren. That's who we're speaking of here. He said, God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the Scripture saith of, Eli- of Elias? How he made intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God to him? <clears throat> I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, that would be when Paul is writing during this age of the church, at the time when God had transitioned his focus to the church, at this present time, he says, there, uh, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There's a remnant of the nation of Israel that has entered into the election of grace. The election of grace is the church. We are the election of grace. Okay? Okay? So Paul's first answer to the question of, is God done with his people? Is God done with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is no, absolutely not. First, in that God has a remnant. God always has a remnant of his chosen people. And in this case, that chosen people is the Jewish people. God has maintained a remnant of them in the church from age to age, from generation to generation. And this doesn't surprise us, but it also doesn't answer our question. We all know that Jews can be saved today. We all know that Jews can be added to the church. The church began with Jews. The church was initially all Jews. It would not surprise us that Jews are still getting saved. But then has God cast off His people? Is that it? Is it just the remnant? Okay, God has not cast off His people, so are you just saying that, the, that, 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 that Israel is not cast off because there's a remnant? No, that's not it either. And we know that from verses 7 through 10. Paul says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Okay, so Israel sought for the salvation of God. The nation sought for the salvation of God. The nation stood under Moses in Exodus chapter 24, and Moses took the blood of the Lamb and he sprinkled it on the people, and they made a covenant. And then in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and following, uh, there were great promises made of a day when God would redeem his people and that people that were being spoken of on that day were the people that were standing before him and he was preaching a sermon to them and that was the nation of Israel. And so Israel has been seeking for this salvation and Paul says, what? Have they not obtained that that which they sought, sought and instead the election of grace has obtained it, whereas the rest have been blinded? According as is written, God hath given them a spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Well, yes, unto this day, that's exactly it. Unto this day, the vast majority of those who were in Israel rejected God's covenant, rejected their Messiah, and so they have, ha- have, have not entered in by faith. And only the election of grace, only a slim remnant of the Jewish people have actually entered into all of God's promises by grace through faith. And David saith, verse 9, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. All right, so Israel has not obtained that which they sought. Only the remnant, according to the election of grace, that are a part of the church, have obtained it. Everyone else has been blinded, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, verse 9, as David wrote in Psalm 69, verse 22. So yes, but that's not the whole story either. Yes, throughout the generations, many in Israel, the vast majority in Israel, have rejected the truths of God's Word. And so I've rejected God, though they be of Israel. Israel does not get a special dispensation. Those that are over there in Israel, that are faithful to the law, but have rejected Jesus Christ are on their way to a sinner's hell. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If they don't come through Jesus, they're not getting to the Father. Simply put. Yes, unto this day in the age of grace, still only a believing remnant of Israel has found God's promises to the full. But that is not the whole story either. Verses 11 through 15. I say then, have they, who's the they here, the they is the nation of Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall? So Israel has, for the past thousands of years, stumbled. They stumbled, Paul says, at the stumbling stone that was Christ. The Messiah came. They rejected their Messiah. They could not get over their self-righteousness. They could not get over the idea that they were going to earn their way into favor with Jehovah God through their works. So they rejected Christ's offer of grace. And to that point, we, we, we would recognize that they have stumbled. They have stumbled at the stumbling stone of Christ. So then Paul says, okay, the, this nation that has stumbled, have they stumbled that they should fall? We're not talking about the remnant according to grace here. We're not talking about those few Jews that have accepted Christ. We're talking about the nation as a whole. Has the nation stumbled and so fallen? And this is where the question is answered. Has God replaced Israel with the church? Has God rejected Israel entirely and the church has taken their place? And notice what he says. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Paul's answer is absolutely not. God forbid. But rather through their fall, that's when they, they stumbled, that's when they rejected Christ, is, uh, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. That when they rejected Christ, that was when God said, Now I broaden this offer to the world. Jesus giving the parable of the man who had a wedding feast and he invited all of his friends and they all gave excuses. So the man says, go to the highways and byways and find every single person possible and bring them into my feast. And that happened because his own people rejected him. Jesus came and he offered the kingdom. And he said, in order to receive the kingdom, you must first receive me and you must receive grace. And they said, sorry, we reject that. And Jesus said, I cannot give you the kingdom. Let me open this thing up to everyone. So they stumbled, they fell, and their fall precipitated the salvation of the Gentile world. You and I have this thing called grace because Israel rejected their Messiah. And Jesus Christ broadened his viewpoint, his, his, his offer. But look at verse 12. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them be the riches of the Gentiles, if the stumbling, that's the idea of fall here, if the stumbling of Israel brought riches to me and you, that would be the riches of grace. If the diminishing of them brought those riches to we who are Gentiles, how much more will there be in the day where Israel in their fullness receives that? Verse 13, For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them, bloodline of Israel, be the reconciling of the world to God through Christ, what shall the receiving of them be, the bloodline of Israel, but life from the dead? The nation has stumbled from generation to generation, but they have not stumbled that they should fall. The nation has not been cast off for good. When God made those promises in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when God made those promises, when Moses was preaching the promises of God in Deuteronomy, when Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31 that there was coming a day where God would circumcise their hearts, God was not metaphorically speaking to you and I alone, and Israel thought that God was speaking to them, but really God's going to pull the rug out from under them and give them nothing. That's not not how that works. Rather, the Bible says, when when Jesus came and Israel said, no, we do not want this kingdom that you're offering. It's not the kingdom we're expecting. God God, God allowed that. God allowed them to stumble at the stumbling stone that was Christ so that through their rejection of Messiah, God might bring about his eternal plan to offer salvation to the Gentile world, a plan which he has had in place since the beginning, which his prophets time and time again testified would happen in Isaiah and in (coughs) Hosea as we think about it this evening. And then Paul says this, but if the faltering of Israel was the occasion that brought salvation to the Gentiles, Their fullness will be nothing short of life from the dead. Now, this is as much a prophetic statement as it is a statement of exhortation. And what Paul is saying is this, and this is what we find as we compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, looking through Daniel and Revelation. There's coming a day when the whole of the nation of Israel will, in fact, accept their Messiah. And when that happens, Paul says in the day that, that Israel accepts their Messiah, what will that bring about if them rejecting their Messiah brought all the glory that is the church age, the last 2,000 years of church history where we've seen people saved and we've seen God do such a great work? What, and, if, and if that's what happens when Israel rejects their Messiah, when Israel receives their Messiah, what should we expect but the resurrection from the dead? That's, that's the end, right? Right? That's when God raises us all from the dead and we all are with him in glory. That's the kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. That's the promise. So in the final days, Jesus will return. The dead shall rise and that those days will be initiated with Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation that entered into that covenant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob entered into the covenant in the days of Moses, that nation will, on a national level, wholesale, that generation will receive their Messiah and that will usher in the resurrection of the dead. Unless there be any confusion that this is what Paul is teaching, we'll skip ahead one more time to verses 25 through 29. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as this is written. There shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as, con- as touching the election... They are beloved for their father's sakes, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Paul says explicitly that there's coming a day when all Israel shall be saved. This does not mean every Jewish person from every age from the beginning of time. This means um, those that have rejected God and His Word, those that have rejected Jesus Christ and died in their unbelief, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. They are condemned already. But there's coming a day when that in that final generation of Israel, when Antichrist places himself upon the temple, the abomination of desolation takes place and Israel flees for their lives into the wilderness and the Son of Man returns in his glory and his feet touch the Mount of Olives and that mount splits in two and the nation of Israel flees between that valley that is made of that mount as it splits in two. There's coming a day and the Bible says that when Jesus appears again, they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will receive him as their Messiah. They will mourn for him and they will receive him for their own. When the nation of whom God said in Amos chapter 2, verse 2, you only have I known of all the families on the earth, this nation will finally align their hearts with God through aligning their hearts with his Messiah, Jesus Christ fulfilling the promise of God to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31, that he would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and that he would forgive their iniquities and he would remember their sins no more. Now for today, you and I have been ushered into the benefits of that promise. Israel has rejected it. To this end, Paul says here in Romans chapter 11 that the nation of Israel currently are enemies of the gospel But beloved of the Lord because of the of their election. Israel is an elect group as well. They are not in the election of grace. They are in the election of the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But theirs is an election as well, and they are still beloved of the Father, though they are enemies of the gospel. And the reason why? Verse 29. Because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Once God has made a promise, he does not renege. He does not turn away. Not to Israel, not to the church, not to you, not to me. And so it is here in these last moments that I want us to think through that. It's been an involved message. I hope it hasn't been too much. But that nugget of truth is this. The gift and the calling of God are without repentance. You know what the most blessed the most blessed element to me of thinking through the fact that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel, the most blessed thing to me of that, reality. That God has not, he did not, uh, uh, pull the old trap door on Israel and say, well, you thought throughout all the whole, whole Old Testament I was talking about you, but I was actually talking about a different group that I'm going to rename Israel, not you Israel, but them Israel. And you thought it was you and I made you think it was you, but actually it's not you. And that's not who God is. And the reason why that's so special the reason why that's so wonderful, the reason why that's so powerful is because God has made promises to me as well. And the reason why I, I'm so thankful for this reality that God has not forsaken those who He gave promises to way back in that day, that when Amos chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that they were a unique people that God had chosen from among the people of the earth, that God has not just cast that aside. The reason why that's so important is because you and I are a part of a unique people that God has chosen too. And we are a part of a unique people, a chosen generation, a peculiar people called the church. And we are a part of an election as well. And if God was willing in His day, in Israel's day, to cast them aside for a new group of people because, well, you know, He made promises to them, but you know what? They, he, he decided not to like them anymore. He decided he was done with them now. He decided, yeah, he made those promises to them, but what he's actually going to do is he's just going to kind of redefine his terms a little bit so that he can say he's keeping promises to them but actually give it to a different group of people. If God could do that once, do you know what? He could do it again. If God could do that to Israel, then he could do it to me too. And I thank God that God didn't do that to Israel. I thank God that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And I thank God for this thing specifically because my confidence that God will continue to do His work in the nation of Israel in that time when they will finally receive their Messiah reminds me that God's gifts and God's calling are without repentance, not just for them, but for me too. And if God has made promises to His church to redeem them and to wash them with water by the Word and to present me to the Father as a glorious church, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, if God has promised that He will finish the work that He has begun in me, well, since the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, then I can trust that I will receive all that God has promised me. From the very beginning, when, when, when I heard that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the simplicity of the reality that Jesus died on the cross for my sins to save me, to do for me what I could not do for myself, to make me right with God. From the simplicity of that promise to the rewards, to the, the gold, silver, and precious stone, And everything else that he has when he says, I have gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will doubtless come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know what? It's all true and it's all mine and it's not going to be taken away from me. And I know that because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. If he could have taken it, if he did take it away from Israel, then I'd better fear today. I better fear for the church because, you know, if you look around at the institutional church today, the institutional church is not doing very well right now. The institutional church is a mess of selfishness, of pride, of greed, at least in the Western world, at least in the United States. And if any institution, if any group of people that claim to be followers of of Christ or of God are worthy to be cast off into the abyss, it would be the the institutional church of the United States. But of course, they are not all of the church which are of the church. Just because a person sits in a church on Sunday does not mean that they have received the promises. But to those who have received, but to those that believe— The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. I thank God for that. I cling to that. And we can do so because we can get a hold of this reality that Israel, too, is a special people to God. It was said in Amos chapter 3 that they are a special people to God. It was said all throughout the Old Testament that they are a special people to God. And the gifts and the calling of God are indeed without repentance.